Good morning. Ooh, you're awake. That's a good start, isn't it? So um, I, I guess you're enjoying the hot weather and, uh, uh, you know, and the football. Everybody happy about the football? Yeah. Semi-finals? Uh, or is the weather getting too much for you? Isn't it amazing how in, in, in Britain we just talk about the weather all the time and um, I guess in some parts of the world, you know, you wake up in the morning, oh, it's sunny. And I wake up the next day, it's, oh, it's sunny again. And the next day, it's, oh, so it's sunny again. And the weather never changes. I, I guess we talk about the weather because uh, we get enough variability to make it a stock conversation. So perhaps you've, uh, you're getting ready for your summer holidays, ordered your new swimsuit. Uh, I get the impression on Facebook that some of you are ordering a new bodies for your swimsuits as well. Um, perhaps you're thinking about books to read over your summer holidays. Load up on your Kindle. Um, other electronic readers are available. So I've, I've got a good rec- read to recommend to you uh, in, a, in a few moments. Um, it's a short story. It'll take you about 20 to 30 minutes to read from beginning to end. Um, before I tell you about it, let's pray. Father, in your word you say, let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. I pray this morning you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and lives. Let it achieve everything you want in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So you might be surprised that my recommendation is a book in the Bible, uh, the book of Esther. Um, Like all good books, it has good and bad characters. A great storyline, mystery, suspense, romance, twists and turns, disaster and reversal, and of course, a happy ending. I was talking to somebody earlier who said, oh, it was a bit depressing last week because it felt like it was very secular, the, the whole story of Esther, but actually it does have a happy ending. So I'm going to suggest you don't wait till your summer holidays to read it, but this afternoon, there's no football to watch. You can watch, there's no tennis probably to watch either, I don't know. Uh, don't wait for your summer holiday. Sit down, put your feet up, and read it. So we're going to look at chapter four today, and I want to highlight some points. Ooh, lost my place. Uh, in the story that I think make it relevant to today. If you weren't here last week, I, I commend you have a read. Read through it from start to finish in one sitting. It's a good way of reading a book in the Bible. Uh, and then watch the Bible Project video. So... Um, I don't know whether you've seen these. Um, They're a fantastic introduction to each book of the Bible. Uh, Also some topics such as wisdom or justice, holiness, the kingdom of God. They last five to ten minutes and you can find them at thebibleproject.com. And they're really helpful. Also, if you missed Paul's introduction last week, you can catch up on it through the church website. So to give you some context of the story, this book isn't really pure history. It's more set up like a historical novel. Many of the facts can be referenced in other historical writings of the time, but it isn't pure history. And it's set four centuries before Jesus. And the nations of Israel and Judah have been taken into exile and dispersed across the Middle East. For 70 years, the Promised Land has all been all but been deserted. And then the Persian king defeats the Babylonians 
Um, And Cyrus allowed many of the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the city. And you can read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible. However, not all the Jews chose to return to Israel. Many of them had assimilated into the societies they lived in and were doing pretty well, thank you very much. The Persian kings had a capital in a place called Susa in modern-day Iran. And by all accounts, it was a very wealthy city with amazing prosperity and opulence. So the book of Esther opens with an account of a banquet which lasted six months. That's a party. I'm not sure whether we'll be celebrating if we win the World Cup for six months, but maybe we will. Maybe we will. Um, in, the, in the banquet, they had solid gold goblets, none of which were like another one that was made. So they were all of different designs. And there was a lot of drinking and celebrating, as a, well as a display of the vast wealth and the glory and the splendor of the king. However, there was a darker side in this society. So King Ahasuerus, the king, deposed his wife because she snubbed him publicly and decided to hold a beauty contest for a new queen. And so he had the pick of the most beautiful women in an empire that stretched from India in the east to Ethiopia in the west. That's a pretty huge geographical area. You might think about this. Beautiful girls were basically abducted and transported to Susa where they were locked up in a harem to be used by the king at his pleasure. Uh, Maybe this isn't so far from some of the human trafficking that we hear about today. But enter our characters. The story centers on Mordecai, a Jewish man working in the palace in Susa, and his adopted younger cousin, Esther. Esther gets taken into the harem and undergoes spa treatments. It doesn't sound so bad, really, does it? Uh, And a special diet to enhance her beauty. But she wasn't free. She's the favourite of the harem keeper who coaches her in what the king likes. Now, as Paul said last week, despite being Jewish, Esther kept her background hidden. As Mordecai probably told her, better to be discreet and not publicize it. The king would have a different virgin every time he fancied it. So Esther gets taken into king, the king after her year of preparation. But she wins his favor more than any of the other virgins. So the king makes her queen and organizes yet another party and public holiday. So in the meantime, Mordecai carries on his day job. He was a palace official uh, working in the palace. So he probably had a pretty good job, really. Um, And he's keeping an eye on his cousin from afar because he can't go into the harem. And one day he's sitting, taking tea in the palace gate Starbucks or Costa. I don't know which one it was. uh, When he overhears a conversation between two of the king's servants who are plotting to overthrow and kill the king. So he reports this back to Esther, and she passes the message on to the king. The perpetrators are exposed and executed, and the story is written down in the king's chronicles. Enter a villain named Haman, the Agagite. 
So this king, the king promotes this man to a high office and commands everybody to bow down before him. Now, Haman is a bit of a pantomime baddie. Uh, Even to this day, when Jewish people tell the story in the celebration of Purim, every time his name is mentioned, they boo and hiss and bang sticks together. They really don't like Haman. Now, I could go into it, but I can't, but there's reasons why why Mordecai didn't want to bow down to Haman. They were sworn enemies. And one of the things about Middle Eastern culture before the days of printing was that it was passed down, the history and culture were passed down through oral tradition. And the Jews and the Agagites knew they were sworn enemies of old. And when Mordecai refused to honour Haman, and Haman found out that he was Jewish, he saw the opportunity to take revenge on all the Jewish people. He persuaded the king to send out an edict to exterminate the Jews on a certain day, confiscate their assets, and put a hefty sum of silver, 350 tons of silver, in the king's coffers. The Jews were doing pretty well, thank you, in Persia. So, if you've got your Bible with you, and I hope you have, um, I'd like us to read chapter 4 of the book of Esther. To help you find it, uh, turn to the middle of the book, where the book of Psalms, and turn left, going back through the book of Job, and the book before that is Esther. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. I'm going to break in there. I think because he had a job, he couldn't go into the palace, he would have lost his job. He was probably in danger by doing what he did. So then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. 
Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The world's in crisis. Jews everywhere are under threat of annihilation. Many of them put on sackcloth and ashes, crying out in distress and fasting. Mordecai is one of them. When Esther hears about it, she's deeply distressed and hidden away in the palace needs to try to find out what's happening. So after some messages between her and her cousin Mordecai, including a written copy of the degree, he instructs her to go into the king and beg for, the, beg for favour and for the lives of her people. Now the problem is the king hasn't called Esther in for, for a month. And the law says that anyone who approaches the king should be put to death unless he extends his golden scepter to them. So Esther knows that what Mordecai is asking of her is extremely risky. She could lose her life. But Mordecai points out that Esther is not at all safe in the palace if she remains silent. But maybe, just maybe, all that she's been through in life, the loss of her parents, the adoption by Mordecai, her abduction into the harem, her favour with the harem keeper, the uncertainty of her future in the harem, her eventual elevation to the queen... Just maybe there's a purpose for her. Who knows whether you have achieved royal status for such a time as this. Now, one of the really strange things about the book of Esther is that God isn't mentioned once. So this has led a lot of people to wonder why, even whether the book deserves to be in the Bible at all. But while God is not mentioned at all, I believe that the author deliberately wants you to ask a question when you read this book. Where is God? Where is God? So first of all, the story's full of of coincidences and unexpected twists and turns. It just so happened that the king deposed his first wife and held a beauty contest to find a replacement... It just so happened that Esther happened to find favour in the harem. It just so happened that Mordecai was sitting in the coffee shop and overheard the plot to kill the the king and saved his life. It just so happened that it was recorded in the Chronicles, but he was never rewarded. It just so happened that the king was happy to see Esther when she approached him. It just so happened that the night after the banquet, this is a bit of a spoiler alert for next week, just so happened the night after her banquet for the king, he couldn't sleep and called for his servants to read back his diaries to him. And it just so happened that the story they picked was the one about Mordecai saving the king's life. 
And it just so happened that the moment Haman was going to ask for permission to execute Mordecai, the king tells him to honor him instead. David Pawson says this, There is another unseen actor in this drama. God must be behind it all. For when so much hangs on an apparently minute detail or circumstance, it is clear that we're watching God at work. The fingerprints of God are all over this story, even though God is not mentioned once. And I think the author deliberately does not mention God because he wants you to ask that question, where is God? He wants us to ask the question, where is God? And that's why the story is hugely relevant today. The story of the Bible that we've been exploring over this year of biblical literacy is that God made a covenant with humanity right from the beginning. He longs to bless the world that he has made and to have a rela- for us to have a relationship with him. Just think about that. The eternal God who made the universe wants to have a relationship with you. I think that's awesome. Through the covenant with Abraham that all nations and peoples will be blessed through him and his, his descendants. Through the covenant with Moses and Israel's failure to keep the side of the agreement leading to their exile, through the potential ethnic cleansing and annihilation of the Jews in this story, through the sending of his son 370 years later to achieve the purposes of God, to bring salvation and hope and freedom from sin to all who will accept and trust in him. And by the way, think about this. If the outcome of the story of Esther had been different and God hadn't shown up, in the story, all the Jews across the Middle East would have been exterminated. And God's plan for the rescue of the world would have been thwarted. God had to act. He couldn't not act. I think Mordecai understood these promises of God. Despite his secular life and job, he told Esther, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. He trusted that deliverance would be provided. So how does this apply to our lives today? Well, firstly, how many of us have faced crises in our own lives, even going through some crisis now? Marriages under threat or broken down? Financial strain? Exhaustion and insomnia, personal work stress, redundancy, family loss or bereavement, breakdown of relationships, ill health, depression or anxiety or other mental health issues. How many of us have been through one or other of those things or more? One of the things we saw in the books of Job and Ecclesiastes recently was that life isn't quite as neat as we and tidy as we might hope it should be. Bad things happen to good people. Good things seem to happen to the bad. Why doesn't there seem to be justice when the Bible makes it clear that justice is one of God's priorities? Where is God? 
You know, it's, it's actually okay to ask the question, where is God? Job said, but if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I see no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. It's okay to ask the question, where is God? The Psalms, full of cries out to God. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day, where is your God? As with a crushing in my bones, my adversaries taunt me by saying to me all day, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you murmuring within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him, the salvation of my countenance and my God. It's okay to question, where is God? C.S. Lewis said this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms When you're so happy, happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon your life as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it seems, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. If you're feeling like your bones are crushed by life or you're shattered by circumstances or ill health, it's perfectly okay to cry out, where is God? We're going to take the opportunity in a few minutes to pray, pray for anyone who feels like they're in this place. If you're struggling, if your spirit is crushed, if you feel God is far away and not responding to your cries, you feel like giving up, I want to encourage you from the word of God and also from my own deeply personal experience that God still hears your cry, sees the path you should take. He still has a purpose and plan for your life. Uh, We sing that song, we didn't sing it today, but even what the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for our good. You turned it for our good and for your glory. Before we pray, there's a couple of other points I want to highlight from this chapter. The trouble is, when when everything's going okay, England's winning the football, life's pretty happy, comfortable, we're apt to forget God. So is there a message for those of us who feel like everything's currently okay in our lives? Well, I think there is. Esther was in a reasonably safe place as long as she kept her nose clean and played by the rules. But Mordecai says to her, not so. You need to step up to the plate. Other people depend on you. Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God has a plan and purpose for each of us. Acts 17.26 says this, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
and he marked out their, the, their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He knows and has planned exactly where we live, who we meet, where we work, what generation we live in. So when we feel that things are okay and hunky-dory for us, what happens when we see others in crisis or our world in crisis? How do we react? When we see our neighbours struggling in their marriages or their lives, how do we respond? When we see human trafficking and modern-day slavery, are we oblivious? When we see massive ethnic cleansing and movement of peoples on a scale unprecedented in history. In 2015, 63 million people were displaced as refugees in the world. 63 million. That's that's almost as many as the population of this country being moved from their places of birth. What do we do about it? I suppose for some of us it's possible to campaign nationally or locally for change in society. For others it might be helping practically on a one-to-one basis in charities such as Restore or The Good Loaf, supporting individuals to get their lives on track. For others of us, we can turn to prayer and fasting like the Jews in this story did. Every time in the Bible it talks about fasting, the Old Testament, it's associated with prayer. So although the Jews were maybe doing it in a kind of secular way, I think it was part of what they were doing. It's part of their history. We can cry out to God for, natural, for supernatural intervention and for change in our world. So I'm drawing to a close. You'll be glad to hear. But one of the amazing things I've learned is that in his plan for this world, God is looking for people to partner with him. We can do this in practical ways, and we can do it through prayer and fasting. Prayer is the key that opens the door to God's solutions for every need and problem. And fasting simply changes our perspective from what's comfortable for us to something that's uncomfortable. It opens us up to God's heart for the world. I don't know if you've ever noticed in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, uh, he's teaching about prayer and fasting, he doesn't say, if you pray or if you fast. He actually says, when you pray and when you fast. So here's a thought. Do you ever get random moments when someone or some situation pops into your mind? You have no idea where that thought comes from. Happens to me all the time. Or someone upsets you by cutting you up in the road or irritates you at work. Do you wonder why? When you see things on the news, how do you react? My suggestion is that maybe sometimes God is bringing that personal situation to mind because he wants you to pray. Pray for that person, pray for that situation. Or maybe you're meant to contact someone and ask them how they are and encourage them. I suggested this to our Connect group recently, and the next day, um, Sylvia here rang up to say thank you. She'd been feeling unwell and a bit sorry for herself when an old friend rang up out of the blue. That encouraged her and built her up. Maybe God brings people to mind for us to do that. So where is God? Well, in our broken world, the truth of the good news is that God 
was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though we were making, uh, though he were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The answer to the problems of the world around us is found in Christ reconciling this world to himself. God is to be found in Christ in us. We are his hands, his feet, his mouth in a broken world. God chooses to use us, inadequate, broken people, to carry Jesus and the hope of glory into our world, our jobs, our crises, the crises of others, and the needs of those around us. Who knows but that you, 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 have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Ask God to show you how you can partner with him in his plan for a broken and needy world. Ask him what he feels about the people and things he brings you into contact with and how you can bring Christ into situations in life that you meet. And if you have never personally put your faith and trust in God who is completely trustworthy, or if you've drifted away from him, from a life of walking with him, then take this opportunity to turn back. I implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God and follow his path.